Hello, and welcome to Relevant History. What does it mean to be a country? I'm talking about a modern nation-state. What does that even mean? In this first season, meaning the first dozen or so episodes of Relevant History, we'll be looking at the question of nationalism. When you look around the map, you see give or take 200 countries, and they're quite diverse. I mean, just to pick two, take a look at the Vatican and India. I mean, one is the home of a few thousand Catholic priests from around the world, and the other is the home of over a billion people from uh, dozens of ethnic groups uh, in the Indian subcontinent. And yet both of them uh, are considered a sovereign nation-state. Where did this come from, this system that we all sort of exist in? Well, it didn't come from nowhere. We used to have uh, different kinds of entities, right? We had uh, chiefdoms. When's the last time you've heard about a chiefdom? I'm sure, yes, in some places in the world these things still exist, but what about something like an empire? Now, some people will argue that, for example, the current American system is a de facto empire. Look at all the countries around the world that are beholden to the USA. But a formal empire with, like, an emperor and armies to enforce the empire and formal borders, it, 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 it doesn't really track. Uh, it's certainly nothing like, say, the Roman Empire, uh, which existed for give or take 500 years, depending on how you want to define things. But I would argue that the concept of nationhood does track with some Jewish rebels we'll be talking about in a few minutes. Now, before we get ahead of ourselves, let's talk for a second about what nationalism is. Uh, in the broadest sense, it's anything that unites a group of people. And if you ask a sociologist what that is, you may get a dozen or more answers. Uh, none of them are right. Uh, none of them are wrong. Uh, they're all just different answers. Now, for my purposes, what I'll mostly be looking at are uh, cultural, ethnic, and religious ties that bring people together and give them a sense of nationhood. But there are other answers. Uh, whole books have been written, for example, about geographic nationhood or economic nationhood. Uh, those just tend not to be as interesting to me. There, there are certain concepts we can play with, but just so you have a good understanding of where I'm coming from. And the other thing about nationalism is that it's kind of gotten a bad rap in the uh, 20th century, uh, for understandable reasons, I mean, you look at the, uh, the nationalist movements of the 20th century, uh, Nazism, fascism, uh, some other kind of ugly isms that killed millions of people, and uh, for good reason, uh, people are a little bit leery of the idea of nationalism, but let's, let, let, let's not forget uh, that nations do exist for a reason and do serve a purpose. To use a cliched example, we would never have put a man on the moon if it wasn't for the concept of nationalism. So religious, cultural, and ethnic ties. What combination of these three things 
would convince you to literally slit your friend's throat with a knife and then offer your neck to another friend who would slit your throat. And for us, that may be a hypothetical question, but for some Jewish rebels in the first century AD, it was an all-too-real scenario. It happened more than once, but at one place in particular, it became infamous. I'm talking about the desert fortress of Masada. In 74 AD, Masada was held by a Jewish sect called the Sicarii. Now, these are some particularly nasty folk. Uh, you probably wouldn't want to go visit them for dinner. Uh, they were religious fanatics, and they were some of the last holdouts uh, of a Jewish revolution that the Romans had more or less crushed by that point. These people were surrounded, they were desperate, and they had no hope of escape. But to understand how they got there, we need to talk about the First Roman-Jewish War, which started in 66 AD, that's eight years before the fall of Masada. And one of the first things you'll notice is that in 66 AD, there was no Jewish state. See, at the time the area that we today would roughly call the state of Israel was a province called Judea. Now, Judea was not a core part of the empire. In a sense, they even had symbolic independence. They had their own king, although he was a Roman puppet. Uh, there was also a Roman governor in the area called a prefect, and the prefect technically had to defer to the king in most matters, but had the authority to collect taxes, which is mostly what the Romans cared about anyway. Uh, the Roman Empire at the time was more or less a symbiotic creature for the people on its outskirts. The Romans had gotten past their sort of conquer-everything-that-moves phase, and it moved into their phase where they were happily administrating their giant empire and growing wealthy. Uh, so as long as you paid your taxes and uh, didn't get in the way of the Roman legions, you not only got to live a prosperous life, but you got protection from people outside the empire who might want to take your stuff. And eh, for about half a century, this had been working all right, but then a certain guy named Nero became Emperor of Rome. Now, for history fans, Nero will already be familiar, but for those of you who were asleep that day in history class, here's a quick primer. Nero was basically one of the five or six worst emperors in the history of Rome. In fact, many historians would consider him the number one worst emperor. This is not an exaggeration. This guy took incompetence to an almost comical extreme. In one incident, he decided to march several legions to the Gallic coast, that's the uh, Channel Coast of France, and then declared war on Poseidon. Now, how exactly you're supposed to fight the sea god, I'm not sure. But these legions essentially threw their spears into the ocean, declared victory, collected a bunch of seashells, and returned to Rome to throw a parade to celebrate that victory. 
Now, at first, something like that might just sound silly, but you've got to remember, it's expensive. It costs a lot of money to move these armies back and forth across the map, and you can't be doing it to fight the sea god. Now, in addition to that, Nero was fond of his reputation and did want to be loved, so he spent a lot of time traveling around the empire, building various public works, like stadiums and baths, uh, many of which are still standing today. Once again, unfortunately, this cost money, and Nero was not exactly the best accountant. Uh, there's one story where Nero was visiting a province and ordered a new bathhouse built in the capital city. When the governor asked him how the new bathhouse was to be paid for, Nero basically told him, ah, don't worry, you'll think of something. Once again, not exactly a shining beacon of administrative competence. So this guy was content to more or less let the provinces run themselves. And in the case of Judea, this got him into some trouble. You see, the Roman tax system wasn't centralized in the same way our tax system is centralized today. Uh, if you think about paying your taxes today... You think about uh, filling out a form which goes to the central government, and by the way, they've already taken your money, and they probably owe you some back. Uh, in Roman times, it was basically up to the provinces to collect their own taxes. Now, this wasn't just a completely free-range system. There were rules, and the Senate set uh, quotas for each province. Uh, where they had to raise a certain amount of money in tax income. Now, this, in turn, got farmed out to subcontractors. So, instead of having some nice, friendly IRS agent come to collect your taxes, you got some guy who works for Tony Soprano. Now, the way these companies were paid, and yes, I use the word companies because that's basically what they were, the way they were paid uh, was that they bid a certain amount on the province's taxes. That is, they agreed they would collect a certain amount. Now, anything above that was pure profit, so you could understand why the tax collectors would not mind taxes going up, and you can certainly understand why people in the provinces would be so resentful of these high tax rates uh, that were happening due in large part to uh, Nero's incompetence. Uh, and this had been brewing for a while, even before Nero, even when taxes were lower. For instance, those of you who are familiar with the New Testament will be familiar with the fact that Jesus uh, was sometimes called out for spending time with tax collectors. Uh, well, there's your reason. These tax collectors were not just government employees. They were some bad people. Add to this the fact that well-connected people were basically exempt from taxation, and you've got a brewing pot of resentment that's about to boil over. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, okay, there's some resentment, but why is there so much resentment in Judea in particular? Well, this is where several different elements come into play. Now, one of them is the unique religious nature of the Jewish community. That is, in this ancient Mediterranean world, pretty much everybody is from a polytheistic culture. They have many gods, and this makes it easy for different groups to assimilate. 
Uh, for example, the Romans, uh, some Romans might settle somewhere in Gaul and build a temple to Jupiter, and it's no big deal to the local Gallic population because Jupiter's just one more god. What's one more member of the pantheon? Everybody's welcome. And uh, the Jewish people uh, had their one god. He was their special god, and they were not to worship any other gods, period. This had been a point of contention in the past, and while it wasn't directly a part of the first Jewish-Roman war that we're talking about today, it's something you should keep in mind because it's something that was in the back of everybody's head while everything's going on. Uh, another factor is cultural. There were a lot of Greeks moving into the area now that it was under Roman control. Uh, these Greeks were mostly merchants, they were wealthy, they were well-connected, and they brought with them not just a bunch of money, but also uh, foreign religious practices that were offensive to some of the Jews in Judea. This was, after all, their native homeland that they had been given by their god, and who were these Greeks to come in and start setting up Greek temples and such? Again, it, it, it goes back to that peculiar monotheistic nature of Judaism uh, that was different from the rest of this Mediterranean world that made it hard for them to assimilate some of these multicultural and cosmopolitan elements of the Roman Empire. Now, all of this got even worse when emperors started appointing incompetent administrators to the region. The fact is, Judea was kind of close to the empire's frontier and wasn't really that central to trade. It was important, but it wasn't like, say, Egypt or Hispania, uh, these important provinces that generated massive wealth for the empire. It was, uh, I don't want to say a backwater, but it wasn't that big of a deal. It was basically somewhere where a well-connected but less than competent person could get set up for a few years to keep their government career rolling. And that's what happened. Uh, for instance, let's take a look at the guy who was a procurator, that is a local uh, economic administrator, before all this started. And I'm reading here from Josephus, who's our main source for this story. He's the only person who really wrote about it firsthand. Uh, and uh, here's what he says about this guy who was there before uh, in the position, uh, Albinus. Josephus says, He did not only in his personal capacity steal and plunder everyone's substance, nor did he only burden the whole nation with taxes but he permitted the relations of such as were in prison for robbery and had been laid there, either by the senate of every city or by their former procurators, to redeem them for money. And nobody remained in the prisons as a malefactor but he who gave him nothing. Now, in the nature of old-timey translations, that's a bit of a tongue twister, but basically what Josephus is saying is that this guy raised taxes and let people bribe their way out of prison in order to fund his own personal uh, pocketbook. Now, this guy died in the year 64 AD, and Nero went and appointed one of his friends to the position of procurator. This guy was named Gessius Florus, 
And he's going to be around for a while in our story. As a matter of fact, you could probably do a uh, pretty good job of laying all the blame for this war at his feet. But we'll get into that in a second. Now, here's what Josephus says about Gassius Florus. And although such was the character of Albinus, yet did Gassius Florus, who succeeded him, demonstrate him to have been a most excellent person. In other words, Nero had appointed just about the worst possible procurator for Judea, and this Florus guy was about to get everybody into trouble. Now, as is so often the case in uh, this type of war, this particular insurrection did have a flashpoint where the bubbling brew of resentment finally boiled over into open violence. And that flashpoint was Caesarea in 66 AD. Now, for those of you keeping track, this is only two years after Florus became procurator, and it says a lot about his incompetence that it only took two years for revolt to boil over, because it all started as a stupid real estate dispute. You heard that right. A major war that killed thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people, started because of a real estate dispute. So in the city of Caesarea, there were a lot of Greek merchants, and a lot of them owned much of the land in the city. And one particular piece of real estate they owned was a Jewish synagogue. The synagogue wanted to stay there. The congregation had no intention of leaving the city. And they offered the Greek landlord five times market value to buy the property outright. Unfortunately, the landlord wanted to build a market in the area, so he declined their offer. The Jews stuck to their guns, so the landowner ultimately had to build a market around the synagogue, which was in the middle of the area. After all, uh, they had a lease. He couldn't evict them. While all this was going on, the local Jews really wanted to secure the future of their synagogue, so they protested to Gassius Florus. Now, in order to do that, in the Roman system of the time, you had to present a bribe, and they bribed Florus eight talents. That works out to about $11 million in today's money, just for him to hear their case. So this is kind of a big deal especially for a local congregation in one city, right? This isn't like the entire Jewish people funding this bribe. This is the local Jewish community. Now, Gessius Florus takes the bribe and then does what any good administrator would do and goes on vacation without hearing the Jews' case. Even under the best of circumstances, this would have been a bad idea. Unfortunately for Florus, and pretty much everybody else involved in this story, things continued to get worse. Resentment was about to boil over into full-on revolution. See, there was a Greek festival in Caesarea at the time, and for most people it was just a time of joyous celebration. People were partying, drinking, staying out late merrymaking, doing what people do during public festivals. Unfortunately, one Greek religious fanatic decided that he was going to protest the Jewish presence in the city. And to do that, 
he sacrificed some birds right in front of the synagogue. Now, this was a purely symbolic gesture for the Greeks, sort of a slap in the face to the local Jewish community. But for the Jews, it was much more serious. The performance of a pagan ritual right on the synagogue steps uh, rendered the synagogue ritually unclean for Sabbath, which was the next day. So the Jews didn't have anywhere to worship, and they didn't have any way to get their existing synagogue ritually clean again in time for Sabbath. And they did what you might expect people to do under those circumstances, and they rioted. So you might be wondering, how does Florus respond? And this is where we run into an interesting historical conspiracy theory. See, Josephus seems to think that Florus wanted the Jews to rebel. Why would he want this? Well, before we get into that, let's understand who Josephus is as a narrator. That's right, we're going to look at our source for a second. Now, any historical source of any kind is going to bring some sort of bias uh, to the story they're telling. But Josephus is a special case because he was actually part of this story, and he will actually be one of the main players in the events we talk about going forward. Uh, he was a Pharisee, a member of uh, a uh, fairly well-to-do family in Jerusalem. Uh, he was uh, under siege during the revolt uh, up north of Jerusalem and Galilee. Uh, he led some of his men to hide in a cave. Ultimately, uh, they were surrounded by the Romans, and he became part of a ritual suicide pact. Uh as it turns out, he was one of two people to have survived this pact, uh, which leads to some interesting questions when it comes to how he tells this story. Because the events of Masada are so similar to what he went through in that cave, we have to ask ourselves, is this personal for him when he's telling this story? Regardless of whether it was or not, uh, Josephus was a Roman prisoner for a time, and then ultimately uh, was uh, released and adopted by uh, Vespasian uh, shortly after Vespasian became emperor. Yes, uh, Josephus ultimately became part of the imperial family. He actually took their family name of Flavius and became known as Flavius Josephus. During the siege of Jerusalem, he acted as a negotiator. Again, one must wonder how biased he is in the telling of these particular stories, because he was involved directly. Again, regardless of what you think about his bias there, uh, he did, after the siege of Jerusalem, go back to Rome, where he became a historian. For the Emperor Vespasian and later Titus, he wrote The Jewish War, which is the only uh, primary account of the first Jewish-Roman War. And he also wrote Jewish Antiquities, which is the, uh, many would say, the best source for Jewish history uh, up to the first century AD or so. Now it's right here 
at this critical point in the story, with the Jewish people rioting in Caesarea, with Greeks rioting in response, when there needs to be a strong Roman hand to resolve this issue, where we fall into the realm of the unknown. See, Josephus tells us about a private conversation between Gessius Florus and a Syrian official. This conversation is not something Josephus could ever possibly have heard, so it leaves us to question how did he find out about it, or is he just maybe filling in some of the details he doesn't understand with things he is imagining? Does he have some sort of agenda here? Again, we can't know. But what we do know is that this is what Josephus said. In this conversation between Florus and the Syrian official, Josephus claims, quote, he had at that very time, he meaning Florus, the purpose of showing his anger at the nation, the nation meaning the Jews, and procuring a war upon them, by which means alone it was that he supposed he might conceal his enormities. For he expected that if the peace continued, he should have the Jews for his accusers before Caesar, but that if he could procure them to make a revolt, he should divert their laying lesser crimes to his charge, by a misery that was so much greater. He therefore did every day augment their calamities, in order to induce them to a rebellion." Now, if this is true, if Josephus's allegation is true, then what he's saying is Florus is afraid that the Jews are going to appeal to Caesar for all these injustices he's done to them, and that Caesar will set things right and remove Florus from his post and punish him and all that. And uh, so to avoid all that, Florus is going to keep being so oppressive that the Jewish people revolt and that Caesar has to put down a revolt. Now, we do have to question this because first, uh, like I already said, how did Josephus even know about this conversation? Right? This is a private conversation between two individuals. And for another thing, we know that Gessius Florus was one of Nero's friends, so would Nero even have cared if the Jews had appealed to him? Uh, based on his character, it seems just as likely that he would have ignored their complaints or executed the people who were complaining. Uh, one theory, and this is not supported by any sort of you know complex academic backing or anything like that, this is just my thought, uh, is that Josephus was in a bind. He was a Roman citizen when he was writing these books. Uh, the Jewish War and the Jewish Antiquities, and he was part of the imperial family, but he was also still a Jew, and so he didn't want the Jews to look bad. He didn't want the Romans to look bad. So how does he explain this war that killed so many thousands of Jews and Romans? Well, he blames it on this one guy, Gessius Florus, who nobody likes, and uh, that way, the Romans and the Jews, by and large, are blameless in everything that happened. Um, and finally, uh, another thing we should consider is, was this conflict inevitable due to the way the Roman system worked? Uh, right, we know Nero was a bad emperor. 
Uh, but would it even have mattered had there been a good emperor? Or was it just inevitable that this procuratorship, this position in Judea, would fall to someone so incompetent and so corrupt uh, that there was inevitably going to be a revolt? We don't know. But what Josephus is telling us is that Florus is doing everything he can to stoke these fires and start a full-on war. We can speculate all day about what Josephus was thinking and what he was trying to communicate and whether this conversation between Florus and the Syrian official ever happened, but it's undeniable that the events on the ground do not look good for his administration. So this Greek extremist has made his sacrifice, the synagogue has been defiled, the Jewish congregation has turned into a mob, and for the time being, they sort of secured the neighborhood. They chase away the merchants from the market, they chase away the construction crews that are still putting the finishing touches on this market, uh, and of course some of these people run to the local Roman garrison for help. Uh, where else do you go? And, uh... Forrest's second-in-command shows up with some cavalry. Uh, they fairly easily corral the mob. And then while Floris's second-in-command is clearing away the brazier that the Greek sacrifice was made on, he's sort of clearing up the area himself to try and mollify the Jews, uh, the mob overpowers his soldiers and the Romans are forced to pull out of the neighborhood. Uh, and the Jews don't stay around to fight. They uh, retreat 60 furlongs from the city, Josephus says, and that works out to just under eight miles. And one thing that sort of supports the idea that they were just getting out altogether is that when they left, the Jews of Caesarea took their books of law with them. These are the holy books from the synagogue uh, that would go with their community anywhere the community went. Uh, and some historians think they were going to relocate nearby. There was a Jewish enclave in Narbata, not far from there. Uh, so we're not really sure what exactly they were thinking at the time. It seems like they were going to leave, though. At least they were willing to leave if the only alternative was more violence. But they were still willing to appeal to the law, so the local Jewish leaders sent 12 delegates, 12 of the most senior elders in the community, as a matter of fact, uh, went to Floris at his uh, vacation villa, which was not far away, and they uh, went and reminded him of the eight talents the Jews had paid him to hear their case. And rather than apologize or promise to get to it first thing upon his return, he has the twelve elders thrown in prison. Once again, we must ask ourselves, does this feed into Josephus's theory? Is Gessius Florus trying to start a war? Or is he just the most colossal douchebag in this story? Now at this time, the revolt is not really a full-fledged revolt. It's a local riot in Caesarea. It could be dealt with locally. But Flores has the brilliant idea to go to Jerusalem first. Now, Jerusalem is all the way down in the south of Judea, away from Caesarea. This is not terribly helpful. And what he does is he goes to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem 
and demands a payment of 17 talents from the temple fund. This is a payment for Caesar. Of course, it's actually for Floris. And it works out to $25 million in today's money. Again, not chump change, especially not in addition to what he already charged the Jews of Caesarea and gave them nothing for. On top of it, he's taking this money from the temple fund. This is not the Jews' money. This is God's money. At least that's how they would see it. Florus could have taxed virtually any other source, and he wouldn't have gotten them upset as he did by taxing the temple fund. In response to this outrage, some of the local Jews started dressing up as beggars and mocking Florus in the market. A well-balanced leader would have just brushed this off and let it go until it all blew over, but Floris was not well-balanced and angrily sent a bunch of troops in to loot the market, where they not only steal from a bunch of merchants who had nothing to do with the protests, they also kill a bunch of people. When the killing and pillaging is done, the troops then bring the original protesters to Floris, who claims there's a conspiracy going on to unseat him. So he offers to let them free if they rat out their co-conspirators. What ultimately happens is that whether or not there was a conspiracy, everybody names somebody, and most of the Jewish upper class are accused of conspiracy. The word Josephus uses to describe these people is equestrian, which essentially means, in modern terms, upper middle class. Florus again, in all his brilliance, decides to have dozens of them crucified. Now, crucifixion is not just an incredibly painful way to die, it's also an insult. See, it was a punishment that was reserved for two types of people, that is, slaves and traitors to Rome. Now, most of these Jewish equestrians who are being crucified are Roman citizens, they certainly should not have died by crucifixion. They should most likely have been beheaded, at the very least. Now, to us modern people, it seems like you're splitting hairs, right? I mean, if, if your dad gets beheaded, you're not thinking to yourself, whew, well, at least he wasn't crucified. But in these times, there was a difference there, and it was important. And this also feeds into Josephus's conspiracy theory, Right. I mean, is he correct? Is Floris really trying to start an all-out war? Because if he is, he's doing a really good job of it. At that point, Floris withdraws from the city, but he leaves a garrison there to keep order. He sends another group of troops back to Caesarea, where they're tasked with quote-unquote rescuing some of the Jews who are fleeing. What this means is that they massacre a bunch of these Jews, again making us wonder what in the world Floris is up to. Now, while all this is going on, there's still the matter of the Jewish-Roman puppet king Agrippa who lives in Jerusalem. I mean, he's still there, and he's still technically in charge, and he needs to step up to the plate. And in Josephus's story, Agrippa gives a very long speech. It's over 4,000 words uh, in Josephus's text, so it would take me roughly 20 minutes to read the whole thing. But essentially, uh, what Agrippa says is that the Jews are weak, they've often been subject people, and, and by weak, right, he means militarily weak. They're a small nation, they can't fight off these big empires, and 
Uh, the Romans are not the first empire, and nor would, will they be the last. He points out it's, it's no shame to be a subject people to the Romans. Look at the mighty Egyptians. Even they are Roman subjects. And then he offers the Jews a choice. He says, submit to Rome and you will prosper. You will benefit from this trade network, the protection of their armies. Life is good. The alternative to revolt is to lose everything. It's hopeless. The Romans will crush you. And instead of prospering, you will be starving. And with that, the crowd goes home for the night. At least Agrippa would have really liked it if everybody had gone home. In fact, there were a number of political factions inside the city who were playing chess at this very moment. Now, I don't want to simplify things over much. As with any subject, first century Jewish politics are a little bit complicated, and it's a matter of how deep do you want to go. Uh, for the purposes of our story, there are basically four factions uh, that are relevant. And those four factions are the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Zealots, and the Essenes. Uh, if you're familiar with the New Testament, you're probably familiar with the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Zealots. At least you've probably heard those words. Uh, the Essenes are a little more obscure, but uh, let's go over each of them just very quickly so we, we kind of understand what kind of people we're talking about here in this ancient world. Uh, the Sadducees, they represent the old guard priesthood. Uh, they're the old Solomonic priesthood that dates back to the time of King David. Uh, not many of them left. Uh, been a lot of wars and invasions and uh, Jewish exiles since then, but uh, there are still a few of them. And uh, due to their position and their importance in Jewish religious and cultural life, uh, they were very influential in society. Needless to say, they were also uh, strongly associated with the temple and the written law, the, the Old Testament written Jewish law that governed uh, life for the most part uh, for, for Jews. And um, they disliked the Romans. They would have disliked any foreign leader. It wasn't personal. Uh, however, they also had enough uh, cultural and historical knowledge to know that you don't fight against an empire of this size. They wanted to keep their temple, right? Remember, the temple at this time was the second temple. It had already been destroyed and rebuilt once in Jewish history. The Sadducees did not want to see that happen, so they were willing to play ball with the Romans in order to preserve their priesthood, their religion, their way of life, all of that. Uh, the next group, the Pharisees, uh, represent the Jewish bourgeoisie, the cultured middle class, mostly merchants and traders, uh, occupations of that nature. They were generally more well-traveled than your run-of-the-mill, salt-of-the-earth, uh, first-century Jew. Uh, many of them would have spoken Greek and or Latin, depending on where they did business. Uh, and because they were oftentimes out of the country, uh, they were more tied to local rabbis in whatever community they visited, uh, more so than they were tied to the temple. Uh, this did put them at odds with the Sadducees on a number of issues. Uh, another thing 
uh, that put them at odds with the Sadducees was their focus on oral laws transmitted down by local rabbis, uh, as opposed to the official uh, bona fide written temple law that was housed in Jerusalem. Uh, and being more cosmopolitan folks, the Pharisees tended to see themselves more as citizens of the empire, as well as being Jews. Uh, so they, they didn't necessarily harbor the same hatred for the Roman Empire that other Jews did. At the same time, this is a diverse group of people. We're talking about essentially a whole socioeconomic class. And there were others that were okay with revolution uh, because of their tie to oral law and local rabbis. They really weren't as concerned about the temple building itself. Uh, that was more or less a cultural thing. Yes, it would be nice to keep it, but if something happened to the temple, it didn't threaten their identity as Jews. Uh, so the Pharisees could sort of go either way on this whole rebellion thing. Uh, for the most part, they came down on the side of being against it because uh, war is bad for business. Now, the next sect we should talk about is a little bit different from the last two, and that is the Essenes. Now, many people may not be familiar with the Essenes. This was a more mystical Jewish sect. Uh, some of their writings still survive today, as a matter of fact. For instance, the Dead Sea Scrolls famously are Essene texts uh, from around this era. Uh, a lot of them were ascetics. Uh, they, were, they were minimalists in their daily lives. They embraced... Uh, suffering and want, and they were they were more mystical in general. Didn't really have many ties to the temple or to local synagogues. They were they were rural farmers, and these folks unfortunately got the worst of it uh, throughout the war because they weren't tied into their local communities as much. They sometimes got raided by uh, nearby Jewish cities who uh, needed supplies. And if that wasn't bad enough, of course, everybody was getting raided by the Romans because that's what you do when you're a Roman army and you need to gather supplies. Uh, last but not least, let's talk about the Zealots. Now, the Zealots were, to put it bluntly, extreme nationalists. These folks did not believe that Jews should ever serve anyone other than God, and that meant not just in the religious sense, but also in the sense of political allegiance. They wanted a fully Jewish state with uh, a restored Jewish kingship, and they were going to fight any foreign leaders who were uh, claiming uh, rulership over Judea, over, as they would see it, over Israel. Uh, these people had been around for a while, uh, you can read about them in the New Testament. They pop up here and there, uh, and, and, and the New Testament being set uh, roughly 30 to 35 years earlier, depending what part of the story we're at. And the Zealots uh, had been engaging in banditry, low-level insurrection, uh, stealing Roman supplies, basically mischief. Right? They had never really been a threat to the Romans. They were just an annoying presence in Judea that was part of doing business. And Josephus says they were mostly idealistic young men, which makes sense if you're thinking about a sort of radical, splinter uh, political group like this. 
Uh, they were, however, the main instigators of revolt, as we'll see in this story. Uh, again and again, they are sort of the presence behind the mobs, stoking them to uh, take up arms against the Romans. They were there in Caesarea, and they are here again in Jerusalem, uh, even the night after Agrippa delivers his speech. And this is their time to stir up some trouble. Yes, if you are a zealot, now is the time for action. They're randomly attacking Romans in the street. Uh, if you're a Roman citizen and not a Jew, go home, lock the doors, and hope the zealots don't come for you. Uh, they're trying to uh, continue whipping up more and more mob fervor. They're calling for Jews to drive out the Roman garrison. And all of that is very scary to the Sadducee and Pharisee leaders who meet in the dead of night after Agrippa's speech to try and figure out what in the world they are going to do about this whole situation. Uh, Josephus was one of these people. He may or may not have actually been at this meeting. Remember, he was a young man right now. He was in his 20s, so he may not have been considered senior enough to attend. We're not really sure. Uh, but it is interesting that you know, even if he did not attend himself, he would certainly have known many of the leading Pharisees at this meeting. Uh, and as it turns out, pretty much nobody at the meeting of Pharisees and Sadducees wanted a revolt. The Sadducees, as I said, were worried about the temple. They did not want Roman troops storming Jerusalem and burning it down, as had already happened a few hundred years before. Um, and the Pharisees were worried about business. Uh, yeah, the taxes were a little high, but all in all, uh, life was pretty good. And the Sadducees and Pharisees decided they, they felt that the bulk of the ordinary people would side with them on this issue. So they decided to call for an assembly the next morning. Now, when a few of these Pharisees and Sadducees go to the temple to make their preparations to call for an assembly, they find the temple servants there, again, mostly young men, most of whom are zealots, already inside the temple preparing weapons. This is bad news. This is really bad news. And it means that by the time they even have a chance to call for an assembly in the morning, the zealots are already going to be passing out swords in the streets. So rather than, you know, do anything heroic to save their city, the Pharisees and Sadducees retreat to the upper city, which is basically a walled-off area uh, towards the top of uh, the hill in Jerusalem uh, where the Roman garrison is located. And it's uh, separate from the temple district where all these zealots are gathering. Uh, so essentially you have... Uh, now, two different uh, groups in Jerusalem. On the one hand, you have the Pharisees and Sadducees uh, holed up with the garrison. And then in the temple district, you have the zealots and a lot of the working people who slowly push their way into the upper city over the course of a few weeks. Uh, eventually, the zealots gain control of Agrippa's palace. And this is where they're really able to advance their cause because they burn all of Jerusalem's civic records. Now, at first, this might seem like something you'd see in a movie or something, right? Oh, they're, they're going to sow chaos by burning all the land records or whatever, right? Well, yeah, they did that, but they also 
burned all the debt records, which gained huge favor uh, with the poor in Jerusalem who subsequently supported the zealots uh, more or less through thick and thin. Now, at this time in the countryside, many young zealots are starting to rally around a leader named Manahem. Uh, now, this was a young man who, with his small band of followers, seized the Roman fortress of Masada in a surprise attack. Now, this was quite a daring attack. Masada is an intimidating fortress, even if the defenders are not expecting you. There's only one narrow, winding mountain path in and out. And uh, Manahem was able to get in with his followers, kill the small garrison, and raid the armory. Uh, and now he was making his way across the countryside, uh, gathering followers. Uh, supposedly, he had great gravitas, really knew how to move people to follow him, and uh, some of his people even thought he was the prophesied Messiah, uh, the liberator who would free the Jewish people from bondage. And Manahem and his cohort show up in Jerusalem just as the Jews are starting to besiege the Roman garrison. Now, Manahem, being a natural leader, does what he does best and steps up and uh, orders his men to start tunneling under the Roman walls. Uh, this effort is successful. His men loot that garrison in Jerusalem now, and they chase the defeated Romans out of the city, killing whoever they can catch. Uh, this makes Manahem uh, very famous. Uh, the crowds are cheering his name, and some of them start calling him king. Uh, this is a step too far for Manahem. He doesn't want to call himself the king, but he's very much aware of his public image, and he's very much willing to use this acclamation to his own benefit. Uh, so after the Roman garrison has been cast out, Manahem appears in the temple, uh, and when he shows up, he's dressed in traditional royal garb, uh, complete with an armed escort, uh, essentially acting like a king. And for the zealots in Jerusalem, the ones who were not part of Manahem's gang, uh, this was a step too far. Manahem had to be stopped. Uh, that very night, uh, some of the zealots in Jerusalem ambushed Manahem and his escort and killed him. Uh, a few of the escort did manage to escape. Those uh, zealots went to Masada, and uh, Manahem himself was publicly tortured to death uh, as a warning, presumably, to others who would claim to be king. At this point, uh, the zealots do reach a deal with the Roman commander to surrender uh, his remaining troops. Uh, when they come out, the zealot leader Eleazar breaks the deal and massacres the troops. So the only Roman to survive is the Roman commander. And interestingly, he only survived because he offered to convert to Judaism. And at that point, uh, rather than kill him, the zealots circumcised him, and uh, we, we don't really know what happened to him after that. What is certain is that at this point, Judea was in full-on revolt, and Gessius Florus did not have the means to put things down anymore. He needed help. And he went to Syria, 
and requested help from the Syrian legate, that's the provincial military leader, uh, Cestius Gallus. And Gallus moved into Judea with a full legion. Uh, in addition, he had elements of two other legions, as well as some foreign auxiliaries. This brought his total force to a total of 36,000 troops, which is quite a substantial force for those days, and would have been enough, uh, in theory, to put down the rebellion. Uh, however, as you'll see, the terrain and other factors did not necessarily favor the Romans and their style of warfare. Moreover, Gallus turned down some help when some local allied kingdoms offered slingers and javelin throwers who were better suited to the local terrain and tactics. Unfortunately, Gallus turned down this help, so we'll never know for sure how he would have performed if he had been using the correct type of military units. Now, Cestius Gallus is coming down from the north, from Syria, and he sweeps through the region of Galilee, which has a little bit more open terrain than Judea proper, and uh, definitely would have favored the Romans, but what happens is that the Jewish rebels, for the most part, retreat across Galilee. Uh, there is some scattered resistance here and there, but for the most part, Gallus is just rolling forward through Galilee without facing any resistance. Now, all of this changes when he reaches an area called Beth Horon, which is a mountain pass south of Galilee in a more rugged area north of Jerusalem. Uh, this is part of a long highland area where travel is treacherous in general, but Gallus had gotten careless, uh, moving across all that open terrain in Galilee without any resistance. He simply was not scouting the way he should have been. He didn't have cavalry out in front of his army looking for an ambush, and some zealots put on a doozy of an ambush at Beth Horon. Uh, as Gallus's army is moving through the pass, they get hit by slings, they get hit by arrows, they get hit by javelins, and all of this fire is coming down from the hills. The Romans really can't respond uh, in any useful fashion. The best they can do is press through this narrow pass and uh, hope not too many people get killed. Uh, ultimately, uh, 515 Romans are killed. Uh, this compared to a loss of only 22 Jews. Uh, so, big victory there if you're just looking at the body count. But uh, Gallus also lost some of his baggage. Uh, we don't know exactly what that is. We can presume some food, maybe some weapons, uh, maybe some construction equipment for laying siege. We're not really sure what necessarily all of that equipment was, but he did lose some, and he also, more importantly, lost some catapults which he'd been bringing with his army. Uh, nonetheless, most of his force is intact. You know, he's still got like 35,000 plus men, and he manages to regroup south of the pass, and they press on to Jerusalem. Uh, surprisingly, when they first get to Jerusalem, they face minimal resistance. Uh, Gallus's Romans and their auxiliaries push right into the temple district, uh, only fighting a few token guards. For the most part, everybody else has retreated into the inner city. 
uh, up where the Roman garrison used to be. So it is there at the wall to the inner city that uh, Gallus and his legions begin to lay siege. Meanwhile, some other Jewish soldiers who are not in the inner city are fleeing Jerusalem altogether. Uh, and like any good general, Gallus orders his cavalry to take off in pursuit and uh, either kill or capture the enemy. And for a variety of reasons, his cavalry simply is not ready and they're not able to engage in this pursuit and those particular Jewish rebels escape. Uh, this is where, once again, Josephus comes in with a conspiracy theory and claims that Gessius Florus had corrupted Gallus's horsemasters uh, so that they wouldn't have the horses ready to press pursuit. Did this happen? It's tough to be sure, but there's a lot of weird stuff that happens with this first siege of Jerusalem. Possibly the weirdest way is how it ended. After uh, this whole initial attack, uh, Gallus's men spent six days undermining the temple walls. Basically, they were building tunnels, uh, trying to get inside, uh, much like the zealots had gotten into the Roman garrison uh, a, a few months prior. And uh, they're making good progress, but at this point, uh, Gallus orders them to withdraw from the city and make for the coast. Josephus doesn't have a good explanation for this, and neither does any other source I could find. It seems like Gallus was making progress on his siege and then just randomly up and left, which is really weird. And it does make you wonder, was Gessius Florus whispering something in his ear to sort of draw out this revolt? I don't know if that's probable. It seems like if it were probable, Josephus would certainly talk about it as if it were true. And we don't have anything like that. Gallus just pulls out and retreats towards the coast. And rather than score an easy victory... Uh, he begins the next chapter in this story. So, for the Romans to retreat, they have to once again pass through this pass of Beth Horon, this area where they had been ambushed previously. Now, you would expect, having already been ambushed there, that Gallus would, you know, send out some scouts, do the things he didn't do before that got him into so much trouble. But instead, once again... He dumbly plows through into the pass without doing any kind of reconnaissance, and once again, the zealots were ready. Slings and arrows rained down on the Roman troops all day, and once again, Gallus managed to plow through while only losing a few hundred men to the Jewish attacks. However, the Jews had been preparing for this time. They were ready for Gallus, and not just for a simple hit-and-run attack to kill a few hundred men. They were out for blood. They were going to kill so many Romans that Judea would once again be free. Now, this task fell to a young zealot leader named Eleazar ben Simon. And what ben Simon had been doing was preparing the Roman catapults, which had been captured during the first ambush, to strike the retreating Romans. So... As Gallus's troops made camp north of the Beth Horon Pass, Jewish fighters blocked the heights over the coastal road and any other escapes. They bottled the Romans in, 
and instead of trying to break out immediately, Gallus stood pat. He did nothing, while more and more Jews moved into the area, making his position ever more precarious. After two days, Eleazar ben Simon led the zealots in an attack. They attacked with arrows, javelins, slings, and the captured catapults, killing over 6,000 Romans. Now, the reason they were able to do this is because the Romans were not able to maneuver in this area. Large infantry formations were a non-starter. You simply couldn't line up your troops and get them from point A to point B without totally breaking the shield wall which protected them. And normally in a situation like this, you would have sent cavalry against your attackers, who were lightly armed with missile weapons, you would have sent them fleeing, and then you would have moved your army out of the area. But because of the confined space, the Roman cavalry couldn't maneuver either. Essentially, you had a killing field, and the Romans were slaughtered. Uh, the remaining troops retreated to Syria, and uh, Gallus was a ruined man. This was one of the greatest defeats in Roman history. In fact, the Romans in this battle lost a legionary eagle uh, to Eleazar ben Simon's troops. This is something that only happened about a dozen times in history, and it was a massive humiliation for the legion, it was a massive humiliation for the commander, uh, Gallus, and he ended up dying shortly thereafter, uh, a completely broken man. Uh, at this point, uh, Florus also disappears from history. And that's a little disappointing because we never really get to find out whether or not he was intentionally stoking this entire war. It's sort of left hanging. Uh, I like to imagine that he suffered some horrible, gruesome end after uh, causing all this, but in fact, the most likely thing is that he retired in disgrace to some rich villa somewhere to live out the rest of his days surrounded by slaves. Sorry to break it to you, that's just how these things tended to go back in those days. Uh, regardless, the Roman legions were gone, the Roman leadership was gone, and for now, Judea was free to govern itself. At this point, the Pharisees and the Sadducees still remained in control of Jerusalem, and uh, for the most part, they led the country uh, through this initial stage of the rebellion. Uh, they divided Judea into five administrative regions and gave uh, different uh, individuals command over different regions. Uh, they also sent out subcommanders for armies and, and smaller units. And Josephus was one of those individuals. He was actually sent to Galilee to lead a military unit uh, in defense. In theory, this is a sensible system. It gets every part of the province up and running. Uh, the problem is that there was no centralized leadership, and each province more or less steered its own course. So while the soldiers in Galilee, for instance, were trying to do Roman legion-type training to deal with their flattish terrain, the Jews elsewhere were mostly engaging in guerrilla training and preparing for that kind of warfare. Uh, but what ended up happening was there was really no unified, cohesive response after the Battle of Bath-Horon. 
there, the Jews had been united. They had been fighting together. And let's face it, they also got lucky. The Romans didn't exactly have the best general. And the, nonetheless, the Jews won. And from here on out, we don't see that kind of united uh, Jewish response. Now, meanwhile, Masada is becoming a bit of a magnet for zealots in the area, and it has fallen into the control of a splinter group. This is a group we haven't talked about yet, but they're called the Sicarii. The Sicarii are essentially bandits and assassins. They're actually named after the curved, sickle-like blades they're notorious for carrying. And many of these individuals had come to Masada, and from there they would raid local villages, Jewish villages, uh, for supplies, and they would also raid Roman caravans. They were the kind of religious extremists where even devoutly religious Jews, if they weren't part of this Sicarii sect were considered not really Jewish enough, not really worthy of respect or protection. But for the most part, this was a small band, not terribly influential on the overall war, and the more moderate Jewish leadership consolidated their gains throughout Judea. At the same time, keep in mind that there's still this whole, you know, Roman Empire hanging out there, and they would really like their province back. Uh, this time, Nero decided not to screw around, and he sent a qualified Roman leader to put down this rebellion. And the man I'm talking about here is named Vespasian. Uh, Vespasian himself came out of the equestrian class, that upper middle class uh, that I was talking about earlier. Uh, he wasn't part of the Roman nobility, the senatorial class, but he did make his name. Uh, he went to Britannia, uh, modern-day Great Britain, as a young man and was uh, successful against some Britannic tribes there and ended up uh, working his way up through the ranks until he became consul. Now, the consulship in older days had been a very important position. It was more or less uh, equivalent to a, uh, the, the, the presidency today, but by these days, uh, it was more or less a ceremonial post. Nonetheless, it was a great honor, and uh, unfortunately, uh, Vespasian had made an enemy of uh, Claudius's wife, Claudius being the emperor at the time, uh, so he quietly retired uh, to get away from Rome, and when Nero became emperor in 63 AD, Vespasian came out of retirement and became governor of North Africa. Interestingly, while he was there, he was notorious for being one of the least corrupt administrators in history, frequently turned down bribes, ended corruption, and actually had to mortgage some of his personal estates to pay down some of the province's debts. Now, to pay for all this, he ended up running a mule trade, which gave him the nickname Mulio, or Muleteer. This was not his brightest moment, but it showed that Vespasian had guts, and he was willing to do what needed to be done to fix the situation. After his stint in North Africa, Vespasian toured Greece with Nero, but ended up falling out of favor with the emperor because he allegedly fell asleep during one of Nero's long poetry expositions. The reason he ended up posted to Judea was the fact that he was just plain competent. 
let's face it, the last few people to be in charge down there had kept screwing things up, and whether or not Nero liked Vespasian, he wanted results, so he gave Vespasian the job. In 67 AD, Vespasian invaded Galilee from the north, much like Gallus had done. Along with him, he brought reinforcements from Egypt, under command of his son Titus. Much like Gallus had done, he crushed Jewish resistance easily across the length of Galilee, and within the year the Romans were in command of the region. And it is during this time period that Josephus has perhaps his most personal part to play in this story. See, during one of Vespasian's sieges, he besieged the city that Josephus and his band of soldiers was defending, and after the city fell, Josephus and his men had to run. Ultimately, they took shelter in a cave, and the Romans found them. Without any hope of victory, they could either surrender or die. Now, at this point, Josephus's troops said, sort of all together, the way people talk sometimes in ancient history books, quote, O Josephus, art thou still fond of life, and canst thou bear to see the light in a state of slavery? How soon hast thou forgotten thyself? How many hast thou persuaded to lose their lives for liberty? Thou hast therefore had a false reputation for manhood, and a like false reputation for wisdom. If thou canst hope for preservation from those against whom thou hast fought so zealously, and art however willing to be preserved by them, if they be in earnest. But although the good fortune of the Romans hath made thee forget thyself, we ought to take care that the glory of our forefathers may not be tarnished. We will lend thee our right hand and a sword, and if thou wilt die willingly, thou wilt die as a general of the Jews, but if unwillingly, thou wilt die as a traitor to them. Yes, according to Josephus, a whole bunch of men actually said all that all together. But his point is clear. What they were proposing was mass suicide. Josephus was having none of this. To begin with, he says it's against God's law. And quoting from Josephus, For my part, I will not run over to our enemy's quarters in order to be a traitor to myself. For certainly, I should then be much more foolish than those that deserted to the enemy, since they did it in order to save themselves, and I should do it for destruction, for my own destruction. However, I heartily wish the Romans may prove treacherous in this matter. For if, after their offer of their right hand for security, I may be slain by them, I shall die cheerfully, and carry away with me the sense of their perfidiousness, as a consolation greater than that of victory itself." So, in other words, what he's saying is, look, it's wrong to kill ourselves, but if we surrender and the Romans kill us, we're going to be martyrs. And Josephus's men are not going along with this idea. They like the mass suicide thing. So, en masse, yet again, they threaten to kill him, so he backs off. However, he still doesn't like the whole mass suicide thing. Instead, he proposes that they should draw lots, and that way no one will have to kill themselves. Josephus's men like this plan. They go along with it. They draw lots, and one by one they kill themselves. And according to Josephus, this was all because they admired him and thought they were going to get to die with him. It's actually a little bit creepy to read, to be honest. And then Josephus says, writing about himself in the third person, 
Yet was he with another left to the last, whether we must say it happened so by chance, or whether by the providence of God. And as he was very desirous neither to be condemned by the lot, nor, if he had been left to the last, to imbrue his right hand in the blood of his countrymen, he persuaded him to trust his fidelity to him, and to live as well as himself. So, in other words, Josephus and one other guy are left, and he basically says, let's not kill each other, and the guy goes along. Josephus and this one other soldier surrender, and they're taken to Vespasian. Now, the Romans who were with Vespasian are actually curious about this educated cosmopolitan Jew who they just captured, and some are suspicious. For the time being, Josephus is kept in captivity. But that's not the end of his part in this story. And this invasion of Galilee by Vespasian is where things really start to go downhill fast uh, for the Jews. Uh, Galilee crumbles. Uh, some of the Jews turn to piracy. They think maybe by uh, looting incoming ships they can disrupt Roman supply lines. This doesn't seem to have been terribly effective, but beggars can't be choosers, and ultimately uh, the Jews did not have many options. Now, at this point, Jerusalem itself is still safe. Uh, Vespasian and his Romans are conquering and looting throughout Judea, capturing various strongholds, but they're avoiding the main city for now. Uh, something else we should point out is that the Romans are also at war with Idumea, uh, which is the Latinized name of Edom, an ancient uh, country just south of Judea. And the Edomians were legitimately in this war. This was not some nominal alliance they had uh, with the Jews. As a matter of fact, they sent uh, 20,000 troops to shore up the defense of Jerusalem, thinking that it would be one of the first cities the Romans would attack. Uh, unfortunately for the Pharisees and the Sadducees who ran uh, the defense of the city, the Edomians ended up siding with some zealots and uh, helping those zealots to take control of the city. Now, not coincidentally, those zealots were led by Eleazar ben Simon, the very fellow who was victorious at the Battle of Beth Horon that humiliated the Romans in the first place. Now, this coup was not itself bloodless. Uh, while there weren't uh, any significant uh, deaths of soldiers, the Edomian troops did uh, rape many Jewish women. They did pillage uh, many homes and businesses. They basically wreaked havoc uh, for about a day before things settled down. And uh, the zealots forgave this. It was part of the cost of doing business. And ultimately, they were able to take control of Jerusalem uh, and begin to prepare for an inevitable Roman siege. What Vespasian was doing was strangling Judea and cutting off supplies and support from the capital, but sooner or later he was going to have to take Jerusalem, and everybody knew it. But at this point, Roman politics come into play. See, Nero finally pissed off enough of the Senate that he had to go on the run in 68 AD and ultimately killed himself. This left the emperorship vacant and the job went to Galba, 
who was the former governor of Hispania, but not well cut out to be emperor and not terribly popular with either the people or the Senate. Now, Vespasian always had his ear to the ground in Roman politics and returned to Rome when he heard of all this going on. And this marked the beginning of what we now call the year of the four emperors. And I'll just talk about it briefly because it's not that important to our story. Uh, Galba ultimately died in January, and he's followed up by a gentleman named Otho. And Otho, in turn, is not even able to get the support of all the various Roman provinces before he ends up having a military face down with his rival Vitellius. Vitellius's forces greatly outnumber his, and Otho ends up killing himself, making Vitellius the new emperor. Finally, sick of being the only competent man in the room, Vespasian himself besieges Rome, and, in December 69, successfully takes the city and executes Vitellius, making Vespasian the new emperor. Not bad for a guy who started out by herding mules. While Vespasian is busy in Rome, his son Titus has not been idle in Judea. Titus decided it was time to besiege Jerusalem. Around this same time, he also freed Josephus from captivity and had him adopted into the family. During the siege, he would ultimately end up using Josephus as both an advisor and a negotiator. Now, Titus took his time and spent until the spring of 70 AD preparing for the siege, so at this point Vespasian is already the emperor. Now, while this is going on, the city itself has not just been sitting there doing nothing. There's a new zealot leader named John of Giscala. He led his zealots into the city and asked Eleazar ben Simon for access to the temple complex in order to make a special sacrifice before Passover. Ben Simon agreed, and, as soon as John of Gishkala's men were inside the courtyard, they slaughtered many of Ben Simon's men. At this time, Ben Simon surrendered, willing to serve under John of Gishkala, rather than fight things out in Jerusalem while an enemy army is setting up siege walls outside. Within a few days of John of Gishkala's coup, only three days before Passover, the Roman walls were completed and the city was completely cut off. At this point, now that the city's surrounded and unable to be supplied, the Romans started building siege towers. The Jews tried to fight back. They burned down one siege tower, killed a bunch of Romans, but it wasn't enough. The rest of the towers ultimately moved in. The Romans were able to use them to seize the first outer wall of the city. In and of itself, this wasn't a huge surprise. The outer wall was lower than the inner wall. You expected to lose it at some point, especially facing an enemy as determined and skilled as the Romans. Nonetheless, it was demoralizing for the defenders. Uh, they fell back slowly throughout the day, uh, and the Romans pressed forward through the outer city. Uh, ultimately, that night, uh, both sides would camp inside the city, both sides would be wearing their armor, and Titus himself would be within the outer walls. Uh, the next day didn't go much better for the Jews. Uh, Titus pushed them all the way back and then took the second wall. Uh, his advisors at that point urge him to demolish the second wall uh, to make the siege easier, but uh, he holds back. 
He still thinks he can negotiate some kind of surrender here, uh, where he does not have to completely destroy the city. Uh, but while he is hesitating, the Jews counterattack and take back the second wall. Uh, regardless of this temporary boost to their fortunes, uh, the rebels at this point are truly in dire straits. Uh, there's still division among them, and they're running low on supplies, and they're in a lot of trouble. And Josephus, who was there uh, in the Roman camp, says, quote, But now poverty had for a long time seized upon the better part, and a great many had died already for want of necessities. Although the seditious indeed supposed the destruction of the people to be an easement to themselves, and by the seditious, here he means the zealots, really, uh, for they desired that none others might be preserved, but such as were against a peace with the Romans, and were resolved to live in opposition to them. And they were pleased when the multitude of those of a contrary opinion were consumed, as then being freed from a heavy burden. In other words, the zealots didn't care who died around them. They wanted civilians to die because it meant more resources for themselves and it meant they could resist the Romans for one day longer. Uh, at this point, it's obvious to everybody else that the siege is over, it's time to negotiate, and Titus offers the Jews another opportunity for surrender. As a matter of fact, he sends Josephus out to negotiate. Uh, Josephus is not really able to make much headway. The people he would have known, his contacts, would have been Pharisees. They would have already uh, either been killed or thrown out of the city when the zealots took control. He wasn't able to do much, unfortunately, and neither were the other negotiators, and the siege fell into sort of a lull with neither side giving nor taking ground. Uh, at this point, some Jews tried to escape the inner city, most of them uh, civilians. Those who really were civilians were allowed to leave. Uh, some of them, who the Romans said were not civilians, were crucified as traitors. And while this lull is going on, the Romans are building embankments around the city. They're building basically large mounds where their troops can hide from arrow fire, where they can bring in more soldiers closer to that second wall. The Jews are sending out crews to destroy these embankments. It's a lot of back and forth in the trenches, low-level siege warfare, but nothing terribly cataclysmic for either side, uh, at least until negotiations break down. And at that point, Titus makes up his mind it is time for the Romans to storm the temple complex. And Josephus writes about the mad rush of these Roman legionaries over the second wall and then through the doors. And he says, quote, As the legions charged in, neither persuasion nor threat could check their impetuosity. Passion alone was in command. Crowded together around the entrances, many were trampled by their friends. Many fell among the still hot and smoking ruins of the colonnades and died as miserably as the defeated. As they neared the sanctuary, they pretended not even to hear Caesar's commands and urged the men in front to throw in more firebrands. The partisans were no longer in a position to help. Everywhere was slaughter and flight. 
Most of the victims were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed, butchered wherever they were caught. Round the altar, the heaps of corpses grew higher and higher, while down the sanctuary steps poured a river of blood, and the bodies of those killed at the top slithered to the bottom. Now this isn't merely gruesome. This is also something that's deeply traumatic to any Jewish people witnessing it. Keep in mind that this altar, this altar in the center of the temple in Jerusalem, is the most sacred place in all of Judaism. And here, their fellow Jews are being slaughtered, and their bodies are just being heaped up around the altar like garbage, and sliding down the steps in this slick, wet blood. I mean, it's a mess. And another thing you'll notice about this account from Josephus is that he's careful to absolve Titus from any blame, right? He says that the troops pretended not to even hear Caesar's commands. Caesar here meaning Titus. And one wonders how hard Titus really tried. I mean, was he blowing a horn? Was he doing something to get people's attention? Or is Josephus just sort of absolving him from guilt since Josephus is now part of the family. Either way, the thoughts and intentions of one man pale in comparison to what happened here. I mean, think about it. The city of Jerusalem hasn't even fallen yet, but the temple is on fire. Josephus says some Jewish partisans caught it on fire by accident when they were setting fire to an apartment next door to block off the Romans. It's all very convoluted, but this temple is burning down and the bodies are piling up inside. And when Jews today go to Jerusalem, they don't go to the inner city, which was still standing at this time. They go to the Wailing Wall, the last remaining part of this temple because that's what was lost to them. This sacred space uh, that had now been defiled and uh, destroyed. But the funny thing about history is that sometimes the most significant moments happen in the midst of everything else, and this burning of the temple was the same way. Uh, the Jews retreated into the inner city, those who could, uh, those who could not, we're in for a bad time. At this point, the Romans are even selling civilians into slavery if they are captured. Uh, and once again, Titus invests the inner city. So he's building mounds, he's building siege towers to get through this last final wall uh, surrounding the uh, Roman garrison. Uh, his men take battering rams to the inner walls. Ultimately, they knock down a part of the wall and there's a breach. Uh, and the zealots at this point don't even try to mount a defense. Most of the defenders flee and the Romans run into the inner city and it is a free-for-all. And here's what Josephus had to say about this last Roman assault on Jerusalem. He says, Caesar gave orders that they should kill none but those that were in arms and opposed them, but should take the rest alive. But, together with those whom they had orders to slay, they slew the aged and the infirm. But for those that were in their flourishing age, and who might be useful to them, 
They drove them together into the temple and shut them up within the walls of the court of women. Now, I should point out the temple is on fire, but it's a very large complex. The court of the women at this time was still very much intact, and it's where all of these Jewish survivors were sort of herded into. At that point, uh, Titus puts one of his friends, a fellow named Fronto, in charge of sorting things out with these prisoners, and Josephus goes on. This Fronto slew all those that had been seditious and robbers, who were impeached one by another. But of the young men he chose out the tallest and most beautiful, and reserved them for the triumph. And as for the rest of the multitude that were above seventeen years old, he put them into bonds, and sent them to the Egyptian mines. Titus also sent a great number into the provinces, as a present to them, that they might be destroyed upon their theaters by the sword and by the wild beasts. But those that were under 17 years of age were sold for slaves. So basically, if you're over 17 years old, you might go on parade in Rome before you're executed, or you might go be part of some gladiatorial contest where you're eaten by wolves or something, or you might just go work in the salt mines until you die of exhaustion. Uh, if you're under 17, good news, you're just getting sold into regular slavery, which means you may or may not be working the mines, and you may or may not come out okay. Uh, regardless, this is not a happy ending if you're one of those people trapped in the courtyard of the women. And if Josephus is to be believed, and the numbers are quite realistic, 97,000 Jews were sold into slavery during the siege of Jerusalem. That's an incredible number. And it's a number that corresponds with the magnitude of this defeat. The backbone of the Jewish rebellion had been broken. There was no more mass organized resistance. There were pockets of resistance, but all of it was local. None of these pockets had the ability to stand up to Rome, and it was just a matter of the legions going around Judea and mopping up. In the spring of 71, Titus set sail for Rome, along with Josephus, so Josephus is no longer in Judea for the rest of this story. The general consensus is that the rest of his account is taken from the diaries of Roman field commanders, but we'll never really know for certain. At any rate, Titus did not leave his legions without a plan. Uh, he left a man named Sextus Lucilius Bassus in command, and Bassus defeated several remaining uh, Jewish fortresses. He also fought a battle against a pocket of 3,000 rebels who were hiding out in some woods and defeated them. And just as he's getting things wrapped up, he gets sick and dies, leaving his lieutenant, Lucius Flavius Silva, as military governor. And at this point, the largest remaining outpost of Jewish resistance is the fortress of Masada. Now, if you remember Masada from earlier, it's where all of these zealots were fleeing to after they either got expelled from other places or escaped a battle. And it had been in Jewish hands for years now, but now it was time for the Romans to take it back. Now, I briefly mentioned before that Masada was difficult to access, that there was only one road in or out of the fortress, 
but I may not have fully expressed the scale of this fortress. The geological formation that Masada sits on is basically a table mountain. It's like a column of earth that just sticks up for over a hundred yards, and it's sheer on all sides. There's basically no way in. Now, the Romans did have a switchback road up to the fortress. This was used for supplies. Um, and the fortress itself was comprised of many compounds inside an outer wall. It had been built over the course of centuries. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was already famous as the place where King David rested uh, after fleeing from King Saul uh, during biblical times. And now it remained as the largest symbol of Jewish resistance remaining. So the Romans moved in, and they built a wall around the fortress, preventing any supplies from getting in or out. They still couldn't reach the fortress, though. I mean, the only way in is this little snaking path up the mountain. You can't move a legion that way. You certainly aren't going to be able to storm the place. Even though there were only 967 surviving zealots in the fortress... There was just no way you were going to be able to fight that unless you could bring down part of the wall. So what did the Romans do? They built a giant ramp to reach one of the walls. Now, they didn't have the legionaries do this. It was mostly Jewish slave labor, actually. Jews who had been enslaved from earlier parts of the campaign were now building this ramp to bring down the fortress of Masada. Now, the ramp was started in the fall of 72 AD, was not finished until spring of 73, took about four months to build, and at that point, uh, the Romans then build a giant battering ram and a siege tower to bring down the wall, and they have their slaves push these up the ramp, and the battering ram is successful in breaking down the outer wall. Now, the Sicarii on the inside of the fortress are quick. They build a second wall inside to fill the gap, so the Romans are not able to penetrate the fortress. But they have to build it out of wood. So the Romans set a fire on the wall, and at first the fire is blowing in the direction of the Roman camp. It almost catches their siege tower on fire, but then the wind changes and as night falls, this fire consumes that wooden wall and leaves the remaining zealots exposed to a Roman attack. There is no escape. Now, last week I was talking with a friend about this situation, and he said it reminded him of the situation in Waco, Texas, with David Koresh and the Branch Davidians and the FBI and ATF uh, setting the compound on fire. And I have to say there are a lot of parallels here. I mean, in this case, there's a man named Elazar Ben Yair, a charismatic leader who's holding these people together, uh, much like Koresh held his flock together throughout the uh, ATF siege. And like Koresh... Ben Yair knows this is a hopeless situation. There is no way that his people are walking out of this fortress except in chains. 
And much like the situation inside the Branch Davidian compound in the 90s, this ancient siege left us no one to tell the story of what went on inside in those last few hours. But in a way, we're fortunate because our storyteller here already has experience with a situation that's eerily similar. Trapped by the Romans, no way out except through slavery. And that's exactly where Josephus had been in that cave in Galilee just a few years earlier. And like many ancient historians, once again, he makes up a heroic speech that Ben Yair supposedly gave to his followers. Now, is this speech accurate? We don't know. But we do know that the man who's writing it has been in the shoes of Elazar Ben Yair. Now, it's a long speech, but I'm going to read it. And this is what Josephus tells us that Ben Yair said to his followers as their wall was burning down. He says, Since we, long ago, my generous friends, resolved never to be servants to the Romans, nor to any other than to God himself, who alone is the true and just Lord of mankind, the time has now come that obliges us to make that resolution true in practice. And let us not at this time bring a reproach upon ourselves for self-contradiction. While we formerly would not undergo slavery, though it were then without danger, but must now, together with slavery, choose such punishments also as are intolerable, I mean this, upon the supposition that the Romans once reduce us under their power while we are alive. We were the very first that revolted from them, and we are the last that fight against them. And I cannot but esteem it as a favor that God hath granted us, that it is still in our power to die bravely and in a state of freedom, which hath not been the case of others who were conquered unexpectedly. It is very plain that we shall be taken within a day's time, but it is still an eligible thing to die after a glorious manner, together with our dearest friends. This is what our enemies themselves cannot by any means hinder, although they be very desirous to take us alive. Nor can we propose to ourselves any more to fight them and beat them. It had been proper indeed for us to have conjectured at the purpose of God much sooner, and at the very first, when we were so desirous of defending our liberty, and when we received such sore treatment from one another and worse treatment from our enemies, and to have been sensible that the same God, who had of old taken the Jewish nation into his favor, had now condemned them to destruction. For had he either continue favorable, or been but in a lesser degree displeased with us, he had not overlooked the destruction of so many men, or delivered his most holy city to be burnt, and demolished by our enemies. To be sure, we weakly hoped to have preserved ourselves, and ourselves alone, still in a state of freedom, as if we had been guilty of no sins ourselves against God, nor been partners with those of others. We also taught other men to preserve their liberty. Wherefore? Consider how God hath convinced us that our hopes were in vain. By bringing such distress upon us in the desperate state we are now in, and which is beyond all our expectations. For the nature of this fortress, which was in itself unconquerable, hath not proved a means of our deliverance. 
And even while we have still great abundance of food and a great quantity of arms and other necessaries more than we want, we are openly deprived by God himself of all hope of deliverance. For that fire which was driven upon our enemies did not of its own accord turn back upon the wall which we had built. This was the effect of God's anger against us for our manifold sins, which we have been guilty of in a most insolent and extravagant manner with regard to our own countrymen, the punishment of which let us not receive from the Romans, but from God himself, as executed by our own hands. For these will be more moderate than the other. Let our wives die before they are abused, and our children before they have tasted of slavery. And after we have slain them, let us bestow that glorious benefit upon one another mutually, and preserve ourselves in freedom as an excellent funeral monument for us. But first, let us destroy our money and the fortress by fire. For I am well assured that this will be a great grief to the Romans, that they shall not be able to seize upon our bodies, and shall fail of our wealth also. And let us spare nothing but our provisions, for they will be a testimonial when we are dead, that we were not subdued for want of necessaries, but that, according to our original resolution, we have preferred death before slavery." And, true to their word, the Sicarii did indeed set fire to everything except their provisions, and they committed mass suicide. When you think about that, you have to wonder what it was like. I mean, these men, they didn't just kill each other, or even themselves. They, they killed their wives and their children. That's something that goes beyond the ordinary terribleness you see in warfare. That's something different. It's, it's something out of a horror story uh, when you hear what happened in those last few minutes at Masada. And you think about the fanaticism necessary to push somebody to that extreme. When the Romans attacked Masada the next morning, all they found was a handful of women and children who had hidden in a storage room. Out of 967 people, only seven remained alive at the end of the siege. And while Masada was not the last rebel stronghold to fall to the Romans, it was the last one of any significance. And Judea went back, for all intents and purposes, to being just another Roman province. So why is this event so relevant? Why does it matter today? Well, there's a little thing called the Jewish Diaspora, the spread of the Jewish people from Judea out through uh, the rest of the world, uh, from which many are now returning to Israel today. And the diaspora wouldn't start for another 60 years, when yet another Jewish revolt was crushed, this time the Third Jewish-Roman War, 
For those of you following along at home, this means that there was also a second Jewish-Roman war between the first and the third. Uh, and at that point, the Jews were essentially cast out of Judea and the diaspora truly began. But the foundation for the diaspora was laid with the destruction of the temple. But the destruction of the temple itself was only part of the equation that gets you modern Judaism. Indeed, the diaspora itself was only part of the equation. Another part of the equation is the flourishing of this local, oral tradition of Talmudic study and uh, rabbinic Judaism. That came uh, from a Pharisee sage who survived the siege of Jerusalem. Uh, some of his followers had smuggled him out of Jerusalem in a coffin, and ultimately, a school he founded would become one of the major centers of rabbinic Judaism, even during the diaspora. And even today, the zealots and the Sicarii remain controversial in modern Judaism. Some of the things they did, the banditry, the terrorism, the suicide, was clearly against Jewish law. On the other hand, for a short time, they were the last defenders of Jewish independence. And that does make their legacy complicated. From 1963 through 1965, there was a series of excavations at Herod's Palace, which is one of the buildings in the Masada Fortress Complex. And there were a lot of finds there, a lot of archaeological curiosities, and one of these, a seemingly insignificant one, was a small collection of date palm seeds, which were stored in a jar. Now, the jar was still sealed and had been kept in a dry place for the entire time it was inside the ruins. The seeds were transferred to the University of Zurich, where radiocarbon dating confirmed that they dated from between 155 BC and 64 AD. In other words, they had almost certainly been inside the ruins of the fortress when Masada fell. For 40 years, these ancient seeds were kept in storage at Bar Ilan University, and in 2005, one of the seeds was germinated. The palm tree, named Methuselah for its ancient age, is strong and healthy to this day. It remains the oldest seed ever to have been germinated, and a reminder that while the defenders of Masada may be long gone, their actions continue to echo today. And that's why they're relevant. Ah. Ah.